Well, good evening. It is good to see you all ventured out in the uh, snow a little bit this evening. We're thankful for you. And as we were uh, meeting here before tonight, and we were discussing tonight's service and some of the things that would be taking place over this evening, I said, you know what? And I'm glad Pastor Mike mentioned in the bulletin where we're at in the debt reduction and boiler fund. Isn't it great to be in a warm auditorium? Uh, you know, I, my office sits over where one of the old boilers was. And it took me about four or five weeks before I realized, you know what? I don't have a helicopter lifting off underneath me. If you were in my office at any point during the winter months and cold months, if you stand in one place, it sounds like we have a helicopter at church. I was kind of disappointed to find out we didn't. Instead, we have a boiler underneath me. <laughs> Uh, that, uh, that is all quiet, and it took me a while to realize how much more work I'm able to get done sitting in my office, and so I've been praising the Lord all this time for the money that came in to pay for that boiler. We praise the Lord for that, and then to see that debt reduction continue. By the way, that number is matching, remember, and so we see the Lord providing abundantly for us. There will be almost $200,000 when we're all done. Well, there will be $200,000 when we're all said and done raising those funds that have come in this year for debt reduction and boiler replacement. And you are reaping the benefits right now. It is a comfortable auditorium for you and I to be resting in and sitting in tonight because of that boiler that's now uh, churning away quietly, praise the Lord, uh, down and we've condensed, we've gone from one boiler to two and so it's even in a different part of the building. Actually more closer to underneath us right now. Uh, two to one, what did I say, Go one to two? Yeah, that's not good math. Uh, we reduced. Uh, we went from, from two to one, and so we're very thankful for that, and we praise the Lord. We want to start that way. As we're studying the church, it is important that we understand that uh, we, under, we realize, we understand that this building is not the church. You are the church. As individuals, you are the church, and so that is very important for us, but isn't it wonderful to know that we can meet in a warm building uh, we say, well, we're going to go down to church, and what we mean is we're going to go down to the building where the church assembles, uh, but you are the church, and so we want to keep it proper and perspect in the right perspective as we study Ecclesia again tonight, but we certainly want to praise the Lord for what he has done for us, and let's do that as we begin tonight looking into the distinction between Israel and the church, and let's, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this evening and the opportunity that we have again to open your word, to study uh, what was the mystery of the Old Testament, something that uh, the Old Testament saints did not see, that they could not see, because you had kept it from them, but that you were using to reveal yourself to the Gentiles. And Lord, as the majority, if not all of us in this room, are of Gentile descent, uh, we certainly praise your name for the chance that Gentiles have to know Christ as their Savior. To have the faith as Abraham did, as we'll study in Galatians this evening. We praise you for Christ and him crucified, risen, and coming again, and that that death was effective not just for those of Israel who would come to know you as Savior, but for all people of all lands. We reflect back on this snowy night to the night in which Christ is born and the news that came that the birth of Christ was good news for all peoples. Lord, indeed, that is true. 
We see one of those blessings and benefit is the arrival of the church and the role that the church plays in this age. So, Lord, we certainly long for the completion of this age. We know that this age, like all other ages before it, will end in the failure of humanity, but it will also end in the faithfulness of the one true God. So, Lord, we praise you and we thank you. We ask for a good understanding of your word tonight. We will be dealing with some difficult subjects, some challenging things, but I pray that you'd give me the words to speak, give us ears to listen and hearts to obey, that your name would be glorified in it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this evening, and we ask your blessing upon it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we get into Israel and the church, part two, we are really looking into some of those critical distinctions between the two, two different groups that God has worked through throughout history. They did not merge at the time of uh, Christ's ascension. They did not merge at Pentecost. They are still two very different groups, and that is one of the things that distinguishes us from other groups as well. But tonight, we are, uh, in this Thanksgiving week, we are looking back. We are very, I hope that you have been paying some attention. I know it's been busy with family and so forth, but been paying some attention to what's been going on in Israel. Uh, Israel has received some of the hostages, not all of them, but a number of them have been released by Hamas. We're thankful for that. Uh, I can't imagine the atrocities that have been committed against those who have been victimized by Hamas uh, since October. But we recognize that as that healing begins for some, there's still those who are trapped in uh, Gaza, held by Hamas, and we continue to be in prayer for them. As we're doing that, and uh, Andrew and I actually were talking a little bit after uh, the morning service, we were talking about a podcast that we're both, have been both listening to. It's not a believers doing the podcast. It's an unbelieving Jew, most likely, who's doing the podcast. And, and there's been some amazing historical facts that have come out of Jewish history. And so that's what the podcast is about. And the podcast this past week, as he had taken some time off, this podcast that uh, both Andrew started listening and encouraged me to listen to, so I listened to it this afternoon. And he, uh, in this podcast, kind of related to what's going on in Israel today, and he used the words, we don't know what is going to happen next. Those words hit Andrew, and they hit me as I was listening. I said, yes, we do. We know what's going to happen. Maybe not next, but we know what will happen. And that gives us great joy as we study the difference between the church and Israel. This is part two. Part one, uh, we uh, celebrated a couple weeks ago, and we recognize as we considered the national distinction between Israel and the church that we were specifically focusing on the promises that were made to Israel that must be fulfilled. Those promises are the covenant that was given to Abraham. We looked into Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17, recognizing the elements of the Abrahamic covenant being uh, given, being ratified in Genesis chapter 15. In other words, blood was spilled, animals were rent in two, and the torch of the Lord walked between them, not with Abraham but, or Abram at the time, but just the Lord. It's an unconditional covenant. And so it becomes very, very important. It's the structure of the promises that were given to Israel. Then we also looked into some of the truths that we found throughout the pages of Scripture that reminded that those were for Israel, including Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10, where we also understood that God is not done with the nation of Israel, even in the age of the church. God still has 
something left for the nation of Israel. And that something is the promises that he made to Abraham. And we also reviewed the fact that if God can't keep his word to Israel in fulfilling the promises to Israel, then can he keep his word to you and I? That is the grand crescendo of Romans chapter 8. And then the question from the unnamed questioner, the rhetorical question from the unnamed questioner that was asked in Romans chapter 9. If God can't keep his word to Israel, can he keep his word to you and I for our salvation, for our preservation? And the answer would be, if he can't keep it to Israel, he can't keep it to you. But he will keep it to Israel. He will fulfill his word to Israel. And there will be a millennial kingdom, a kingdom in which Christ will rule on the literal throne of David over a literal people of Israel in the land of a literal land of Israel. And we're going to look into one element of that tonight as we dig further in. And I said we would understand the church and the new covenant. This is probably one of the most confused covenants in all of the Old Testament for us, and that is because it blends in, and you and I each month celebrate the Lord's table, and in it, we're reminded of 1 Corinthians 11 that goes back to the Gospels where Jesus is with his disciples, and he says that he will not eat or drink this table again until he drinks it anew with them in his kingdom. But then, the church is commanded as an ordinance to practice the Lord's table, which reminds us that the blood that was spilled was the blood of the new covenant. It ratifies the new covenant. Just like the Abrahamic covenant was ratified, so too is the new covenant. And we also have the promises that were built on it, which we studied last week, which were the Davidic, or rather the Deutero covenant, or the covenant of the land, the Palestinian covenant, and then the covenant that was given to David, that is that there would be a ruler on the throne of David forever. And so these covenants all go back to the Abrahamic covenant. So keep that in mind. You have the Abrahamic covenant, and out of it flows three covenants. The Palestinian or land covenant or Deutero covenant. You also have the Davidic covenant, and you have the new covenant. Now, keep those in mind because there's another covenant we're going to bring up tonight. The other covenant we bring up tonight is the one that was made with Moses. That covenant is not an unconditional covenant. That is a conditional covenant. Obey, receive award or rewards. Disobey, receive judgment. What did Israel do? Obey or disobey? Disobeyed. So that was a conditional covenant. The purpose of the Mosaic covenant was to reveal the nation of Israel specifically, but all of humanity's inability to be holy. We cannot do that. And if we sin one time, we violated the entirety of the law. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, as pompous and as arrogant as they were about their ability to keep the law, had failed simply because very early on, very young, they had lied or they had stolen or they had gotten angry out of wrath instead of out of justice or righteousness. They sinned from the very earliest moments, and they were born of sinful parents. And so they had generational sin that had gotten passed on to them, inherited sin because of Adam, and they had their own personal sins. They were guilty, and the whole point of the law was to show they were guilty and needing a Savior. So that is the Mosaic Covenant. So let us not get the two covenants, really two covenants that we need to be mindful of, the Abrahamic Covenant and its subsequent covenants, 
and the Mosaic Covenant. Let us not blend the two. The two are very different because one is conditional, the Mosaic, and one is unconditional, the Abrahamic. And keeping those two separate, it will help us understand where we're going tonight in the church and the new covenant. So as we begin here, I'm going to remind you again, uh, we're going to be flipping through the pages of Scripture. We're largely going to be in the New Testament, but not exclusively tonight. And we're going to start largely in the Old Testament, actually, and then move over where we'll spend the rest of our time in the New Testament. The New Covenant. The New Covenant's role in the church is a deep study, and there continues to be significant disagreement on this. In fact, I have uh, three books in my office that are about 1,500 pages each that all take a different position on the New Covenant. All of those who write them are dispensationalists. So we're not talking about covenantalists. We're not even talking about the other side of evangelicalism. We're talking only about dispensationalists, three different views that are widely held by dispensationalists. And they can argue them uh, extensively, as you could tell by 1,500 pages each, and uh, with some reasonable bearing that, yes, there could be some truth there. The question is, really, and it boils down to this question for the church, and it's odd to reduce uh, 4,500 pages worth of writing that I just referred to to one question, but I'm going to do it. That is, what is the church's role in the new covenant? What is the church's role in the new covenant? What are we doing towards the new covenant? There's three real strong dispensational positions, and I'm not going to tell you which one I hold, because I think we have enough disagreement in those. You can hold any of those three, and we can say, hey, amen, let's worship together. Uh, there's no, this isn't a hill to die on. This is a hill to study for sure, and you could convince me to one way and convince me the other way and convince me the other way, and then I'll probably still settle where I'm at uh, tonight uh, because I think it's important that we understand it, but we also recognize that whatever our role is, that is secondary to what we are to be doing. And so we'll get all the way to that, Lord willing, tonight. So uh, with that, the new covenant. We recognize from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, as we celebrate that, and we're not going to turn there right now, but we, we hear it every month. We study it both in the Gospels and in 1 Corinthians, where the Lord says that the blood is the new covenant, the new covenant that is in his blood. In other words, that the new covenant is ratified by the blood of Christ. And so initially... Uh, dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists, those of the church and those of Israel who are believers automatically assume that Jesus was referring to them when he says that they're to take it and that the new covenant is theirs and ratified. And so that begins to ask some significant questions, or we begin to ask some significant questions. Are we presently living out the new covenant? And I would say whatever position you hold, the answer is not fully. How do we know that? Turn back to Jeremiah. We're going to start here in the book of Jeremiah, and we're just going to kind of work our way through several important passages. This is the key passage. Uh, if you were studying for some sort of ordination or licensing, you better know Jeremiah 31. Uh, this is an important chapter for what we're going to study, and an important chapter on the new covenant. The new covenant is, its timing is fascinating to me. It's timing that it's given to Jeremiah is fascinating because at this point, uh, notice what's going on. 
There is a mourning. In fact, verse 9 of Jeremiah 31, it says, With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am the father of Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. What is going on? What would lead to all this? Well, if we go back a little bit in the book of Jeremiah, we'll recognize that there's been all kinds of trouble. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, and Israel, Jerusalem rather, and Judah are about to be destroyed. In fact, are rapidly being destroyed. And Jeremiah is there. Jeremiah has been in prison. He's been in a cistern. And the Lord is speaking to him and saying, despite all of this, I'm going to judge Israel. But in my judgment of Israel, I'm also promising the restoration of Israel. That becomes very important. Because as disobedient as Judah was at this point, and Israel had been prior to this point, the northern tribes and now the southern tribes, as disobedient as they had been, God is finally judging them and judging them harshly. And he says, despite all of this, Nebuchadnezzar is here. He's going to take out Judah. Everything's going to be destroyed. Jeremiah, I want you to know that the nation of Israel, what's left of it, and Judah and Benjamin is going to be hauled off to Babylon don't fight. In the midst of this destruction, recognize that I'm not done with Israel. I'm not done with this people yet. That is the synopsis of Jeremiah's ministry. It's his job to go tell the leaders of Judah and uh, Jerusalem, stop, stop fighting, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar because you're not going to win. They don't like that, of course. And so they throw him into the cistern. In fact, if you were to go to Israel today, there's a cistern that as you come into the old city of David, that as you walk in, you can look down into the cistern. They believe that's the one where Jeremiah was held. Uh, That is a humbling place to look down to where Jeremiah was held as he listened to the city fall apart and be destroyed above him. And it's in that moment that the Lord says, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem now, but I'm not destroying Israel forever. And that's where we get chapter 30 and 31. And at the end of chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, listen to what the Lord says. All this destruction's going on. And the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the, by hand, took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. When we think of that passage, think of that culture where you're not going to have to say to your neighbor, you need to know the Lord. Your neighbor will already know the Lord. And when you share with them the things of the Lord, it will be in celebration, not instructions. And that is where the Lord says, I will establish in my people, a new covenant. That is what he promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, and Genesis chapter 17. 
But it's also what Christ says as he institutes the Lord's table in the last Passover meal with his disciples, that this blood is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We are to remember the ratification of the new covenant as a church. But also pointing to time of the millennial kingdom. So we need to understand, is this new covenant enacted today? And the answer, the simple, quick answer to that would be no. Why? Because I'm standing here. Because there's still instruction in the word of God and you still don't have in every way the law written on your heart. And there will be a day where that will be true. And we understand the Spirit's ministry that is going on. But there's more to the new covenant than just that. Go back to Isaiah now. And just a a little bit further back, Isaiah chapter 11. And listen to some more of the details. By the way, Ezekiel has some details too. But we don't have time tonight to go there. There are others there. But Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, and listen to this element and tell me if we're in the new covenant. This describes the new covenant and what's going to happen in light of the new covenant. The verse says in verse 6 and reading through verse 9 of Isaiah 11, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And the little little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in an adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let me ask you this question. Is this happening today? Not at all. It's not happening today. We have anti-venom because this is not happening today. And you have to keep lions in case. uh, And we just had a perfect illustration of this. We didn't know it until the zoo here decided to put two animals together. And putting those two animals together this summer didn't go very well. And who would have guessed that a pygmy hippo would have killed? Uh, What was the animal that was with it? I don't remember the animal that was there. I have to go back and look that up. I wasn't going to use that as an illustration tonight. Uh, But you put two animals together and they fought. And one was victorious and the other wasn't. Uh, we don't live under new covenant law yet. We don't live under new covenant mandates yet. So the question is, what does the church have to do with the new covenant? And I would answer, at least in part, that we do not practice new covenant living today. And by the way, every dispensationalist, no matter what position they take, would agree with that. Why is that important? It's important because we have a rise that's happening today within evangelicalism called nationalism. We have to be very careful because we are not going to bring in the new covenant. The new covenant is what Christ has ratified by his blood and he's going to be the one who brings it in. And we have some markers of when it's going to come. So let us be careful uh, with this as well. So the new covenant is that which... We see some of its details here in Isaiah. We have some of its details in Jeremiah. It's actually spoken and given in Jeremiah 31. It's ratified at the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ. But it's not for the church, at least not in its entirety. The new covenant is repeated, though, in the New Testament. And so let's go to the New Testament. We're going to spend most of our time here in these few passages. And I want to spend 
uh, really in really one book, Hebrews chapter 8 is where we're going to spend. So Hebrews is where we're going. Hebrews chapter 8, the new covenant is repeated in the New Testament, and a careful study helps us. This is why, by the way, it's so vitally important that we are consistent in our hermeneutics. Our hermeneutics is the science and the study, uh, and I really, let me back up, it's the art of the science and study of Scripture. That's what hermeneutics means. It's an art form, it really is. But when you read a book, and you're reading it from cover to cover, you're not imagining your own story and interweaving it into that story. You're letting what's written on the page come out, and you're letting it happen in its literal sense. You're paying attention to figures of speech. You're paying attention to nuance, but at the same time, you're letting the words speak for themselves. That's what we should be doing with the pages of Scripture, and in doing that and staying consistent with the literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic, we recognize that the author of Hebrews, as he comes to this point, is revealing more details of the new covenant, but he's speaking of stuff beyond what you and I experience as a church. Listen to what he has to say, Romans chapter, or rather, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8 through 12. The scripture says this, for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest." For I will be merciful toward their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is pointing to these two covenants. And he's saying a new covenant has come. We're no longer under the old covenant. What is the old covenant? I told you there were two different covenants. By looking into Jeremiah 31, we know which covenant it was. And by looking here in Hebrews, we know which covenant it was. It was the covenant that God gave to Israel as he held them by the hand and drug them out of the land of Egypt, which was the Mosaic covenant, not the Abrahamic covenant. That one was when they were in, when Abraham was in the land, the Lord gave him Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, very different. It's not a conditional covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. And so we're not talking about the Abrahamic covenant and this covenant that God made and the old covenant that God made with the nation of Israel when he drugged them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. That was the Ten Commandments. That was the law that was given at the time in the covenant of the Mosaic covenant. That was the old covenant. Now we have the new covenant, which the Lord says the purpose of the new covenant is to supersede, to fulfill the elements of the old covenant that were not possible to be fulfilled by humanity, by sinners, but by Christ alone. And so the whole idea of Romans chapter, or rather of Hebrews chapter 8, is that Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant and the ratification of the new. But the new covenant is not like the old. The new covenant is the provision for the people of Israel to enter into the millennial kingdom to come. That is where the author of Hebrews is going. 
God has to work out the Abrahamic covenant in the three elements that I mentioned before. Man is not going to do this. God is working out the details. The first detail is there has to be land. That's what's being fought over right now in the nation of Israel today is the land element. And when God is done, there will be no fighting over it. It will be clearly established as the nation of Israel's. So we're not even living in the fulfillment of that covenant yet. There's the other element of the covenant where there will be a member of the line of David sitting on the throne of David. Well, we have the member. The member is Christ. He is the one who will sit on the throne of David. But that one has to have a people to rule over. And so what did he do? He provided for a people to rule over. And that's what the new covenant is all about. That people that he will rule over. He bought them with his own blood. The same blood that did the ratification of the new covenant and fulfilled all of the legal requirements of the Mosaic covenant. So there's a lot of covenants floating around, but it's very important for us to keep the two separate. You have the Mosaic covenant, which is the old. You have the Abrahamic covenant, which has the three elements of it, and God is answering every one of those elements. And in every one of those elements, he's providing for the land, he's providing for the ruler, and he's providing for the people. The new covenant deals with people. And the Old Covenant, while revealing that the people could not do it on their own, the New Covenant does in providing Christ as a sacrifice. So that is the way the covenants of the Old Testament fit together. And now, as we come into the New Testament, and we understand the difference between the church and Israel, we've asked the question, what is the New Covenant? That's where we've been. We're asking the question, does the church now participate? Does the church now participate? Well, when we understand this provision, we may be tempted to say, well, it seems like, yes, we do participate in some way. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10 for a moment. Keeping Hebrews chapter 8 in mind, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 through 18, the scripture says this, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And then he moves into our response as the church. What's fascinating to this passage and the Hebrews chapter 8 passage is the way that the author of Hebrews begins to write them. He clearly delineates a separation between the church and Israel. This was for them. Notice as you wrote those two passages down, study the context of them, and notice how many times the author refers to them being other than us. Other than us meaning the nation of Israel. There's also the other than us, the non-believers that we find in the book of Hebrews, but in this context, he's saying they were given a covenant. They were given a covenant, and unlike our society, biblical scholarship is concerned with pronouns, (laughs) Uh, We don't know who we are, but biblical scholarship is concerned about their and them. And so the scripture says that their and them, their covenant, they had it, it's for them. And then he says what we should be doing about it in chapter 10. And he fills in the details after verse 18. And he reveals to us all the way through the rest of it, building up all the way through the rest of chapter 10, building up into chapter 11. He builds up this grand crescendo of what we should be doing. 
and we should be advancing for the sake of Christ. In fact, look at verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers, in other words, what should we do about this? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, and we could keep going on and on, as the writer of Hebrews says, in light of the ratification of the covenant. This covenant has been made with Israel, but what do we do about it? Let us live in its great and wonder awe. Let us stand in the awe of the new covenant. There is something new that has come. We do not live by the law. We live by grace because Christ is the ratification of the new covenant. And so we live in a different, under a different guideline, under a different covenant. And so it is important to understand that the church is distinct from Israel We are not necessarily beneficiaries of the elements of the new covenant, but we certainly understand some of the way that it will act when it's here. When will it be enacted? It will be enacted during the millennial kingdom in its fullness. You can disagree with how much we're actually living it today, but I would say we're certainly not living out its main components today. No matter what position you take, We're certainly not living out its main elements. There's still far more of the new covenant to come. So then, what is the purpose? The purpose of the new covenant, according to these two texts that we've studied here in the book of Hebrews, and the overwhelming statements that we have seen in Jeremiah and Isaiah, the one that I mentioned in Ezekiel, the purpose of the new covenant is to prepare a people, a people of Israel the people who will inhabit the millennial kingdom. That's the purpose of the new covenant. The purpose of the covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the purpose of that covenant is to provide the land. And there's borders that are given. The borders that were expressed in Genesis chapter 17, those borders will be given to Israel in their entirety, in an actual physical land. And there will be an actual physical ruler to rule over the land and the people, which are provided by Jeremiah 31. And that ruler is provided by 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. It'll be from the line of David. He will be from the line of David. And so now what we see in the new covenant is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, at least the ratification of the last component of the Abrahamic covenant. <clears throat> Despite the rebellion of the people of God, the Lord is still working to prepare them for a coming kingdom. God's not done with the nation of Israel, and we have to keep that in mind. As a church, we have to be mindful of what God is doing. And so when we partake in the Lord's table, we are looking forward to a millennial kingdom. We are looking forward to Christ taking that table again anew with the people of Israel because now they will understand the fullness of the ratification of the new covenant. But we also recognize, turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. There's some more that we need to know, beginning in verse 8 of Galatians 3. The scripture says this, 
Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. It says in the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. We're going to come back to that phrase. That's an important one. So then, those who are of faith are blessed among, are along with Abraham, a man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not obey all by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But law is not faith, rather the one who does them shall live by, by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who, is, who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now this is where we will have covenantalists and dispensationalists disagreeing. Is right here on this one text. And they'll say, ah, see, here it is. This is where Israel takes over for the church. But in order to say that in the text, you make it have to do some hermeneutical gymnastics. That's not what the text is saying. There is a clear separation that Paul still maintains between those of Abraham and of Abraham's progeny and those of Abraham's faith. There's two different groups. And so as he's illustrating those two, and there's actually more than that because he says Abraham is of many nations. But there is one element, the point of bringing this out for the Apostle Paul and why it was so important for us to spend the bulk of our time looking into the unconditional covenant of Abraham tonight is that there was one phrase going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when the Lord had brought Abraham out of Haran, having brought him out of Ur to Haran and now to Israel into the land of promise that Abraham didn't even know where he was going. When he gets there in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord says, see all of this? This is yours, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And at the end of verse 3, he says, and all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Beloved, if there's any element in which we are blessed through the Abrahamic covenant, or through the new covenant, it is because of that statement in the Abrahamic covenant. It is because of what God promised then. All nations of the earth would be blessed. What is that blessing? That you and I who are Gentiles have the opportunity to receive Christ. That's the blessing. And what a tremendous blessing it is. That when Christ died for you, he could die for you, who are Gentiles largely, and he could die for Jews. That he would ratify at the same time the new covenant for the people of Israel. But that in the process of dying to ratify the covenant, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Everywhere would be blessed. The church is the evidence of the faith of Abraham being available to the Gentiles. Now, this is a deep theological construct, and it's very important for us to understand. In fact, Pastor Toonstra and I were talking about that on uh, just a few minutes before we came out to start the evening service. This is, there's a lot of deep theological application and truth here, but it's also very uh, simple in one sense. It's simple in the sense that God said in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that Abraham's line would be blessed, that Abraham's descendants would be blessed. And in the same breath, 
the Lord separated clear back in Genesis chapter 12 the line of Abraham from those who came of the faith of Abraham. The Lord has always kept a distinction, always kept a distinction between Israel and the church. And so, how do we navigate it? How do we navigate? This is going to bleed into next week a little bit, but how do we navigate the church and the kingdom? Because this is where it's all going to come to a head. We're looking forward to the day when there will be a kingdom. And so in order to do this, we have to navigate some confusion. And we're going to do that, and this is going to set the stage for next week, Lord willing. There seems to be some significant confusion over this. And we're not, we're not really debating the covenants. In fact, that's a weird element to this. You have covenantalists who don't believe or don't, don't speak, don't refer back, and using that as a title, don't refer back to the Abrahamic covenant or even the Mosaic covenant. They're referring back to a covenant of grace and a covenant of works, going all the way back into Genesis and saying that we are now under a covenant of grace all the way back in Genesis, and so there's a different prescription for us at that time, early on, and that's what we live under. And Israel disobeyed the covenants, and so all the covenant blessings turn over to the church. To do that, you have to ignore the distinction that the Lord draws. It's as simple as that. The Lord draws distinctions, and he distinguishes between Israel and the church. In order to say, as covenantalists do today, this is our uh, Reformed. If Reformed is in the title of the church, they're likely Covenantalists. So whatever Reformed. uh, Reformed whatever. They're likely Covenantalists. uh, Along with Presbyterians and others uh, who would follow in this. Not all, but most. And so you have uh, Covenantalists who hold to a different set of covenants than what we just discussed. But you also have Dispensationalists. And Dispensationalists are often confused on these issues as well. And so it's important for us to keep the distinction, and it's very important that we cut through the confusion. And the way we cut through the confusion is we let Scripture speak for itself. There is clearly two sides. There's the line of Abraham, which is not Islam, although Islamicists would say that it is. They would go back through Hagar, back through Ishmael, through Hagar to Abraham and say, ah, see, we are the people of Abraham. And we would say, yes, you are. You are the people of Abraham, the evidence of Abraham's sin, but you are the people of Abraham, but you are not of the chosen, promised ones. You are not of Isaac, who was the one that the Lord promised. And how do we know that? Because you have the covenant that comes out that is given to the line of Isaac, Israel, to follow. And so we have clarity there. So we have the line through Isaac to all the way back to Abraham. And then we have those who come by their salvation in the same way that Abraham did. What was, in fact, uh, this is a quiz for you briefly. Hebrews chapter 11 says that Abraham was justified by what? Faith. Faith. Abraham was saved by faith. David was saved by faith. You were saved by faith. It's not difficult for us to understand that truth, but it is challenging for us to do that because we try to work our way there. But all of these Old Testament saints that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 were saved by faith. In fact, it says that in Genesis 15 as well of Abraham, that he was saved by faith. So we are saved of the same faith that Abraham was saved by. So we're children in that way, but we're not his literal progeny. If, unless you're of the land of Israel, or the people of Israel. 
So we need to navigate some confusion. Let scripture speak for itself, understand the distinctions that we've witnessed between Israel and the church, and understand that those distinctions must be maintained while we wrestle with the role and the function of the church. Why is that all important? If the, ch if the church is confused about her purpose, let me tell you of some of the disastrous results, and I'll just give you some of their names. Hitler. That's the church being confused. You say, well, he wasn't part of the church. Hitler grew up Catholic. His mother was a staunch Catholic. His father was um, a skeptic. And so when Hitler came of age, he denounced, kind of, denounced Catholicism, accepted Lutheranism, and then told the Catholics that he didn't denounce Catholicism, largely because he was trying to build the alliance with Rome. So Hitler grows up in the church hearing covenantalist and Catholic doctrine and understanding its distortion and believing that the Jewish people must be annihilated because they were obstacles in the way of God establishing his kingdom. We have the Crusades that did a lot the same. Not all of the Crusades had the same atrocities and the same purposes, but many of them did. And there was battles, holy wars as they were called, in the Crusades. So it's very important that the church understand her purpose. That if we disregard God's love for the people of Israel, that terrible atrocities are allowed to be committed. The church must be the bulwark. And that does not mean that we give Israel a pass today. Israel does commit terrible atrocities today as well. And we are not standing up for their committing of those sins. But we are certainly those who stand in the way of those who would use faith to attack the nation of Israel. And so we want to be careful there. We do need to understand, and we're going to get into this. We do need to understand that there are different kingdoms. We're going to get into this next week, so I'm just going to give you a precursor, and then we'll be done for this evening. The precursor is this. There's the universal kingdom. So when we sing of the kingdom, and we say, Lord, bring in your kingdom, what are we saying? There's two things, two, really two main kingdoms that we're talking about. And I've actually had a song rewritten. I've spoken to the original writers of the songs who come from a covenantalist background. And I said, look, your song is great. Uh, we love it. We like to sing it in our church. Uh, th this was during the time I was pastoring in Chicago. And I said, we love your song. Uh, we wanted to use that song in the anniversary celebration of the church for the 60th anniversary. And I said, but there's one word in it. Can I change one word? And the word is the kingdom. And it says something to the effect of uh, the kingdom unfurled. And I said, can I change that word to hope? Living hope. I think, I think it says like kingdom hope unfurled or something to that effect. And I said, can we change it to living hope unfurled? Because we're not trying to bring in the kingdom. Because the kingdom being mentioned there is the millennial kingdom, not the universal kingdom. There are two different kingdoms. We're going to get into this more next week. <clears throat> There's a universal kingdom. Scripture reveals that God is the ruler. He is the sovereign. And he is sovereign over the universal kingdom. So that kingdom is, no matter what we do here on this earth, no matter what Satan does, <clears throat> in his rebellion against God, 
God exercises jurisdiction over the nations of the world. He appoints rulers. He appoints the rulers of his choosing, and he judges the world. Daniel is where we encounter this, Daniel chapter 2. Well, remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and Daniel interprets it for him. And Daniel says that God is the one who establishes rulers. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the one, but God corrects that. God is the one who establishes rulers. He removes rulers, he establishes rulers, and he judges the world. Uh, We recognize this. uh, Revelation is going to point to it right now in Revelation 15.3. God is the ruler of the nations. And ultimately, they will answer to him when he judges them. Psalm 110, verse 6. So there's the universal kingdom. God is sovereign over that. There is also the Davidic. And this, this kingdom comes by three designations in theological terms. And so you may have heard of one of the three or all three of them. Uh, we speak of the Davidic kingdom or the Messianic kingdom or the Millennial kingdom. The, it's, there's reasons for all of that, and I'll briefly give them to you. It's called the Davidic because the promises concerning the kingdom were made to, in the covenant that was with David in 2 Samuel 7. So it's David's kingdom. It's the Davidic kingdom. And so that's one reason. It's the Messianic kingdom because the Messiah will be the ruler. He's the one of the line of David. He's going to be the ruler. And so it's been designated as such that it is realized that at the second advent of Christ, that is when Christ returns, and you and I who know Christ as Savior will be returning with him. Uh, This is after the tribulational period. The tribulation is ceasing at this event when Christ returns. I cannot wait for this event. This is one of those that I'm earnestly yearning to see. Uh, You and I will be coming in with Christ, Christ being the victorious ruler. Everything that Israel thought that the Christ should be, that the Messiah should be, we will experience those who know Christ as Savior in the church age, and we will be behind him. We're not going to be in front of him leading the charge. We're going to be behind him watching him do the work. Uh, That is going to be an amazing event. And he's going to establish his kingdom, and he's going to rule for a thousand years, i.e. the millennial kingdom. Uh, So all three kingdoms, whenever you hear that designation, Davidic, millennial, or messianic kingdom, that's what we're referring to in theological terms. Scripture says it's the kingdom that's a thousand years, so millennial is probably, the, or the millennium kingdom is probably the best way of discerning that, uh, stating that, because it's the most biblical. Uh, we see that reminded that that passage comes in Revelation chapter 20, verses 6 and 7, where it's called the kingdom that will last for a thousand years, or the thousand year reign. But some sad news as we get there, and this is where we're going to end. With, uh, By the way, before I get there, uh, if you were in the biblical literacy class, uh, that was a class that Pastor Toonstra just finished up today. Uh, if you were in that class, uh, you got some, some help uh, for tonight's study. And if you weren't in that class, there is a book called uh, Biblical Literacy, right? Uh, it is by um, Corey Marsh, who's at Southern California Seminary. If you do not have that book or are not familiar with it, look it up. It's definitely worth it. We're going to teach it again in our Adult Bible Fellowship coming up. It'll be about three-year rotation. Uh, you want to be in that class. That is a fantastic class. That is a fantastic resource. I don't usually sell resources very much. This is one that I would really push for you to buy, uh, Biblical Literacy by Corey Marsh. And it's about 10 bucks or so. Uh, definitely worth it, yeah. 
Absolutely. So we'll advertise for the voice as we're advertising for it. <laughs> Pick up the voice. You can see it in there. It's advertised in the voice uh, magazine as well. So that'll tell you where it tells you where to get it there in the voice. So make sure you pick up a voice, copy of the Voice magazine. It's in there. Corey Marsh is a good friend of mine. He is a fantastic, he's one of the up-and-coming scholars of our generation. But he writes at a level that all of us can read. And so uh, you'll be blessed by that resource. And it'll help you understand the new covenant and the role of the church in the new covenant. And uh, so filling in some of the details maybe that we had to move through rapidly this evening. But getting back to dispensational, how, how this all ends. Every dispensation ends with the rebellion of humanity. Every single dispensation, except for the last one, <laughs> which we won't be able to rebel at that point. Every dispensation to this point has ended with man's failure. And the tribulation will end in man's failure. And the millennial kingdom will end in man's failure. And then God will establish the new heaven and the new earth. That is the sad news as we bring it to a close. That's the sad news because you and I, listen carefully, because there is this giant movement that's happening in the church, and it's consuming all of those of different theological persuasions in the evangelical church. There's this movement called Christian nationalism, and we must be very, very cautious because the movement is driving people to this idea that you and I can bring in this utopia-type mindset. That's the same thing that covenantalists believe that we can bring in, at least some of them, that we can bring in this utopia mindset, that we can usher in the kingdom. You're going to hear those phraseologies just like that one, where we're going to usher in the kingdom. Beloved, we will not usher in the kingdom. We will be participants only in as much as we are raptured from here to meet Christ in the air. And then he will inaugurate the next dispensation. And so we are excited for that event. What is our job then? Why do we study the church in Israel? Because you and I have a role. It is our responsibility, according to Galatians chapter 3, it is our responsibility to be those who proclaim the truth and the excellencies of Christ who purchased us. And so we go back to Matthew chapter 28. What's our job? To go out and evangelize and to make disciples. That's our job. And praise God we have that job because we can take the gospel to the Gentiles. Because under the Old Testament law, Gentiles were outside of the law. But under the New Covenant, or at least under the age of grace in anticipation of the New Covenant being fully implemented, we have the joy of taking the gospel to the nations. That every nation, tribe, and tongue will one day shout praises to our Creator God when we sing of His majesty in one voice. Let's close this evening in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you tonight as those who are grateful. We're grateful because the gospel has come to the Gentiles. Lord, we're also grateful that you are not done with the nation of Israel. In fact, there's so much to go yet. There's so many promises that will be literally, distinctly fulfilled that there will be no question. It'll be that which gives us great joy and continues to give us the astounding and reassuring hope that as believers we are safe in the things of the Lord because you're not done with Israel. 
Lord, I praise you that as we see this unfold in our world today, all the atrocities being committed against the nation of Israel, that we will be those who stand firm, knowing that they are a people that you are not yet done with. Lord, we do ask that you would allow us to have opportunity, and especially on an individual basis, to be faithful and honest, that the nation of Israel is, is not all innocent, but that at the same time they are your people. So I pray that we would be found faithful in sharing Christ with them, not, not confusing or watering down the scope of the gospel simply because we know that one day you will redeem Israel. Rather, that we'd be diligent in presenting the gospel to those that we come in contact with, whether Jew or Gentile, that they would hear the gospel clearly and that your spirit would move in them, that they would respond. Lord, we yearn for the day when you will return for your church. We pray that it would be now, that you would not tarry any longer. But as long as you're tarrying, we praise you for your patience that more can come to know you as Savior. So, Lord, we pray that our faithfulness to the task that is before us would be paramount in our thinking and that we would be bold and passionate about sharing the gospel with those that we meet, that it would be our ambition to share the gospel with the last one before the rapture, that your name would be glorified. Lord, as we depart from here, it's been a good week with celebrations with family and friends and neighbors even, We pray now that you would give us abounding opportunities to live for you in the holiness we discussed this morning and in the zeal to share the gospel that we have discussed this evening. Lord, give us clarity as we study these things in your word. Help us to be found faithful and obedient. Help us to study them diligently first and then to be faithful in understanding them well. That your spirit would give us understanding where we are weak, where we are not knowing what what we ought to know. And we give you the glory and the honor for what you're doing. So, Lord, we praise you. We thank you for all these things. We ask your blessing as we depart from here. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.